Turn with me to Ecclesiastes chapter 1 and let us uh, pray. Father, would you help us all to see that life with you is fullness of life. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, my friends, Ecclesiastes chapter 1, beginning at verse 1. The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun goes down and hastens to the place where it rises. The wind blows to the south and goes around to the north. Around and around goes the wind, and on its circuits the wind returns. All streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full. To the place where the streams flow, there they flow again. All things are full of weariness, a man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. What has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done. And there is nothing new under the sun. Is there a thing of which it is said, see, this is new? It has been already in the ages before us. There is no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of later things yet to be among those who come after. I, the preacher, have been king over Israel and Jerusalem, and I applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. It is an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. I have seen everything that is done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity and a striving after wind. What is crooked cannot be made straight, and what is lacking cannot be counted. I said in my heart, I have acquired great wisdom, surpassing all who were over Jerusalem before me, and my heart has had great experience of wisdom and knowledge. And I applied my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. I perceive that this also is but a striving after wind. For in much wisdom is much vexation, and he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. Do please sit down. Well, let me just begin with a word of thanksgiving. This week, some of us noticed that in our church budget cycle, the beginning of this year's church budget has been, by some reckoning, the best for the last 25 years. And given what we all know about the economic situation globally, that is remarkable and something to praise God for. And so I want to mention that as a thing to praise God about to begin this morning. Well, with that in mind, let's begin our study in Ecclesiastes. And I want to start with a story. It's a story about a cowboy. I love cowboys. This was a cowboy who came to town with a six-gun. He was a dead shot. And so he decided he would have some fun, and he went in and began firing at everyone's toes, saying, ever danced? And they danced. And as this was going on, a farmer uh, came into town, and the cowboy also said to him, ever danced? And fired at his toes, and the farmer proceeded to dance, you see. Well, once the cowboy had finished his uh, playing around, the farmer walked out to his uh, donkey, he'd come into town on a donkey, he walked out to his donkey and 
quietly pulled from the side of the donkey a double-barreled shotgun. And he came back to uh, the cowboy and said, Ever kissed a donkey? (laughs) And the cowboy replied, No, but I've always wanted to. (laughs) I've always wanted to preach Ecclesiastes. People think it's a depressing book, but it's really not. Basically, Ecclesiastes is saying that all of life under the sun, a key phrase that's repeated throughout it, uh, all of life under the sun is hebel in Hebrew, that is vanity or meaningless. But life above the sun, there's this sort of um, spatial metaphor that goes through it, life above the sun that is life lived in connection with God, well, that's life, a life of joy and meaning. Ecclesiastes, you see, is an extended answer to the question, is God really necessary to have a good time? Can I not just have fun without God? Cannot I be successful without God? And Ecclesiastes is saying that the meaning to life is life lived for God. And so if you like, God's answer to atheism is that atheism, that is life under the sun, is hebel, wind, vapor, mist, uh, ephemeral, in translation, vanity or meaningless, pointless, going nowhere. It ends in the grave. Uh, Perhaps you know the new iPhone 4S has a... uh, computerized voice assistant called Siri, and people have been describing the unusual and funny answers that Siri gives to various questions. Apparently, if you ask Siri, what is the meaning to life, it responds like this, I cannot answer that now, but give me some time to write a very long play in which nothing happens. (laughs) Or, all evidence to date suggests it's chocolate. (laughs) But probably the answer which reveals a little more, the answer that Ecclesiastes is giving, is when Siri replies, 42. Uh, The answer is the meaning of life that Douglas Adams' books gave, saying that the real point is that people need to find out what the question is first. See, that is, Ecclesiastes is digging deeper beyond the usual shrill atheist Christian debates, to look life square in the face from an empirical point of view, that is personal experience point of view, perspective. Is life under the sun really meaningful or is chocolate all there is to it, you see? And in many ways, the whole of Ecclesiastes is a commentary on uh, the first chapters of Genesis, chapters 1 and 2 with all the light, and then chapter 3 with the fall, and then pointing to the New Testament, Romans chapter 8, by contrast, playing the dark and light themes like a Rembrandt painting. There is life above the sun, but life now under the sun is uh, no longer in the Garden of Eden, in paradise. And it wants us to see that, otherwise we will be mistaken and miss the joy that the Bible has to offer. 
Secular life is hebel. Christian life is joy. And so, actually, this book is a strangely comforting one. In Jewish tradition, it is read at the Feast of Tabernacles, the most joyful of feasts. Why? Because there's nothing like being weaned off our world of pretense, looking life full in the face and saying, you stink. It does. There is no meaning. The teacher says so. The Bible says so. That is, life without God stinks. (laughs) And so it's drawing us to put our energy in the place that is above the sun and in the person that is God where there is meaning. And it does it in uh, this first chapter in two ways. First, in relation to work. And uh, it is saying that first, work without God stinks. (laughs) And so it asks the question, what does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? And that question being asked, the answer is given from verses 4 to verse 11. And that's developed throughout the rest of the book, but here's a key to the Bible's attitude to career, employment, human labor. We say, I love my job, or get to the top of the career ladder. The Bible is asking us, what is it all for? All this human labor, as impressive as it can be, nonetheless has a huge question mark hanging over it. Achievement may be apparently progressive. It looks like we're going somewhere. Standing on the shoulders of those who have gone before us, climbing the career ladder, but in reality, it is saying it is simply cyclical. So verse 4 tells us that generation follows generation, and on and on, and the earth remains the same. There is a cyclical turning of son following father, followed by son, and so on. Verse 5 tells us that day follows day. The sun rises, the sun sets, and so on. There's a cycle in human generation. There's a cycle in daily rotation. Verse 6 tells us that even the weather follows this pattern. The wind goes to the south, then to the north, round and round, touching all the points of the compass once and again and again. Verse 7 tells us that water even has this rain, river, sea, rain, uh, water cycle that meteorologists today call it, but observable in one way or another to all. All streams flow into the sea, yet the sea is never full. To the place the streams come from, there they return again, rain, river, sea, rain, cycle. Verse 8 tells us that uh, sensory pleasure is never satisfied. And so you might think to yourself, well, okay, maybe uh, what I'm going to do then is get my fill of feelings and experiences, touch, taste, feel. I'm going to become one giant sensory membrane and embrace um, experience. And then what do you find? You find that you can never satisfy the eye. The eye never has enough of seeing or the ear its fill of hearing. It's like a thirst that cannot be quenched, a need that cannot be satisfied. There's no joy in that. It's a constant chasing without satisfaction. I can't get no satisfaction would be a commentary on this verse. Verse 9 tells us that there is nothing new under the sun. 
That is, that all apparent novelty is really a repeat of something that has happened before. Perhaps in a different guise or under a different name, uh, but basically the same thing over again. Uh, After all, you just have to look at fashion. Uh, As a teenager in the uh, 1980s, I swore I would never wear flares. And then late 90s, it was all flares and boot-cut jeans. And now it's back to skinny jeans, which are what we call drain pipes in the 80s. It's all retro, man. Uh, verse 10 tells us that all developments really have their beginning in ages long ago. You cannot say, look, this is something new, uh, because it may look like it is, but really it was here already long ago. It was here before our time. Then verse 11 tells us that perhaps with a few famous exceptions, forebears are all forgotten. And so even fame is illusory. One comedian gave his last monologue on TV, joking about how after he was gone, in a bar, they would be saying something like this. Do you remember old so-and-so? Yes, wasn't he great? He's dead, you know. Really? I hadn't heard. What an epitaph, the famous comedian joked. Ironically, two years later, after that monologue, he was dead. And if I gave you his name now, you would not have heard of him. In fact, I cannot remember myself. (laughs) And uh, of course, this puts a major question mark over all our efforts. Our life, if lived under the sun, is like drawing with a finger in the sand on a beach. The tide comes in and wipes it out. And it goes out again and in again. Or as Ecclesiastes puts it, life is vapor, hebel, wind. We're just gas blown around, a chasing after the wind, a striving after the wind. And so all our human effort is pronounced pointless. Now again, it's uh, strange to hear the Bible speaking like this maybe. But we must put to rest, speaking as frankly as I, as I may, The lies are those who tell us that life is easy if you follow the rules, or that if you have enough faith, you'll get whatever you want, that God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your bank balance. Pull the other one, this preacher is saying, the teacher of Ecclesiastes. Look around, doesn't work stink? Who gets to the top, and when they get there, so what? Why try to be famous if you're going to be forgotten? And if you're not, so what? You're not there afterwards to relish it anyway. You want to work so that someone can make a statue of you in the city and have pigeons perch on your head? Why try to be impressive? Who's looking? Who are you trying to impress? Why work to do something new when there is nothing new under the sun? Why seek pleasure when the very exercise of it just stimulates you to want more of it? Why have children when it is just one generation after another if life under the sun is meaningless or vanity? So the teacher wants us to understand that work without God stinks. And in so doing, you see, in the context of our wider picture of Christianity, we are, by means of Ecclesiastes, weaned from our juvenile need to play with our material toys 
and invest in something above the sun that will last forever. There is a new type of work for the Christian, the new creation, that does have meaning. It's not only for the religious professional, it's something we can all do. It's what Paul calls the work of the gospel or the work of the Lord or your labor in the Lord, which Paul insists in the light of the resurrection of Jesus is now not in vain. So if none of this life under the sun has meaning, what then? Well, then I should give all to the work of the gospel. Whether I earn my living from garbage collection or investment banking, I know that my labor in the Lord, that is living for Christ, telling others about Him, bringing friends to church, serving in the church, this eternal labor of the new creation is genuinely new and will last forever and is not in vain. So it's trying to wean us, this book of Ecclesiastes. Are you weaned yet? And if not, the teacher, this Ecclesiastes, as he's traditionally uh, known, the Kohelet, literally, that is the caller of the assembly, Ecclesiastes has one more pronouncement to make. Not only does work stink without God, college without God stinks too. (laughs) Now again, I'm going to speak as plainly as this Ecclesiastes speaks as he comes to discuss wisdom. And I suspect there's no greater idol in this city as in any college town or perhaps this type of personality that the teacher is now about to address than the temptation to worship the intellect. Perhaps even us evangelical Christians in recent years are not helped by admirably fostering involvement in the academy, the university, as we at College Church, of course, encourage, just about probably having the highest average IQ of any evangelical church in the country, perhaps, I don't know, but. Um, yet fostering that as we should and saying as we must that it is possible and indeed necessary to love the Lord not only with all your heart and soul but also all your mind as well. Yes, but have we become too accommodating? Are we, as one scholar reflecting has put it, becoming more interested in academic respectability than academic responsibility. Uh, The pressures are obvious, the career, the need not to be typecast as unthinking because wholeheartedly believing. Yet at root, somewhere in our heart, those of us who love to read and think and reflect, all of that frame of mind in particular, and I count myself there, need to embrace this message, this ultra-realist of the teacher Ecclesiastes when it comes to wisdom. So he says, I applied my heart to wisdom. Great wisdom he achieved. So this is no occasional pick and mix academic hanger on, but a real professor of great standing with a seat of learning, taking his cue from Solomon himself, famous for his wisdom throughout the world. That kind of genius and hard work combined. A scholar's scholar He explored by wisdom all that is done under heaven. His conclusion, 
what an unhappy business God has given to the children of men. And so he's thought about it even theologically, God has given. And still, what a heavy burden. It's part of the mysterious attraction of Ecclesiastes that it does not quickly retreat to pious familiarity. And so somehow we need to see what the teacher sees. Intellectual exploration, as impressive as it can be, is not in itself less transient or less hebel, less meaningless than being a banker or lawyer or accountant or anything else for that matter under the sun. Perhaps we are tempted a little by the Gnostic idea that somehow the mind is better than the flesh in itself. The body, it's not. It's all just as much vanity, this side of Genesis 3, under the sun. And so intellectual observation of others' labor shows their futility under the sun. It is a heavy burden, he says, verse 13. It is chasing your tail, striving after the wind, uh, verse 14. It is unfixable and unfinishable, verse 15. What is crooked cannot be straightened. What is lacking cannot be counted. You you build it and it falls down. You mend it and it leaks. You think about that all. You observe it intellectually from your ivory tower, but that doesn't divorce you from the same dissipation, the grand entropy of life's meltdown. You're involved too. And so intellectual observation of intellectual exploration, even that is futile, uh, verse 16 to the end. He has grown much in wisdom. He tries to comfort himself by complimenting himself on being top of the class or having got to the Ivy League or something. And he thinks, well, isn't that good? But then he realizes it too is meaningless if under the sun. Verse 17 tells us that understanding and wisdom, even the opposite extreme of madness, all intellectual exploration from the surreal Salvador Dali to the logical positives, all is a striving after wind. Why? For verse 18, it merely reveals the essence of things, the basic truth, this home truth that the Corlet is trying to bring home to his hearers. For with much wisdom is much vexation. He who increases knowledge increases sorrow. He is a teacher, a professor, perhaps a preacher, maybe, whether religious or academic or school professional. He has Solomon's desire to dispense wisdom. There's a real activity of teaching going on. We are to imagine the classroom, the teacher says. Imagine if our teacher said this. It's all meaningless. We have to imagine a public lecture from an eminent scientist. There is no meaning. It all revolves. We are to imagine a preacher before an assembly. Meaningless. It's all a grand attempt to wean us from our refusal to face up to life under the sun. See, we hang on to the modern myths of positive thinking, of IRAs, or pension, or legacy, or success. We grab onto them like pieces of flotsam and jetsam, bobbing up and down on the sea of our lives after the shipwreck of the fall of man. They are there, it is true. They drift by, but they are waterlogged. They're going 
Nowhere. He's like the ancient mariner with a message so compelling. His eye grabs you as he says, water, water everywhere, nor any drop to drink. There's this basic fundamental irony to life under the sun. He wants you to face up to it, to realize that you cannot find joy or meaning in life under the sun, to realize it. Now, that's hard for us to do, I know, because of the wreckage of the Garden of Eden, the paradise of our forefathers' experience still floats by us, and we feel it, and of course, we want it, and understandably, we hang on to it. But he wants us to see this question mark of futility hanging over all under the sun like a sword of Damocles balanced above our heads without any doubt as to its end, certain in its finality and utterly meaningless in its present existence. Yes, college without God stinks too, he wants to say. Why spend your days thinking about life when life is obviously meaningless? What, can there be greater meaning in thinking about something with no meaning? Why study when it leads nowhere? Why strive to become top in the class when the top will soon be the bottom and the bottom the top? And even insanity and genius are a breath, a hebel, apart. Why try to get to Harvard or Yale when the graveyards of both institutions are full of forebears whose names are forgotten or mean nothing? At Yale, everyone had heard of Phelps' gate, but no one knew who Phelps was. Why be a professor when the subject matter you are teaching is so pointless? Why have a high IQ when all it gives you is a better chance to see with greater clarity the essential meaninglessness of it all? Wouldn't it be better not to see so clearly? When you examine the lives of the giants of the mind, you sometimes wonder. Frederick Nietzsche was no friend to faith, though a genius nonetheless. And the exact causes of his insanity are unclear, but he spent the last few decades of his life with no mind. Perhaps the assortment of medications he took for his extremely sensitive constitution. Perhaps some decaying disease he had contracted. Perhaps, some have speculated, the very positions he espoused about life's worthlessness given the death of God, he proclaimed. And all that is left is a fight for what you can get, the will to power. Perhaps the result of an intellectual temperament so strong that at its height left all other enjoyments behind, bent, as a contemporary biographer records, over his manuscript, practically blind, scribbling away, no possessions, no social conversation, apart from the brief, a mind burning up the body. What's the point of this? We've heard of Nietzsche, but so what? He's dead. What good does it do him? And anyway, what did he find out that was anything other than what Ecclesiastes had already said? Some resort to patriotic sacrifice in an attempt to get meaning under the sun. It's a higher and more noble feeling, no doubt, to give up your life for your country than to use up your life for your pleasures. And those of us who live off the freedom of the great generation who died for our liberty can only be grateful. And yet even that, even that, well, in the words of Rupert Brooke, an English poet, if I should die, think only this of me, 
There is some corner of some foreign field that is forever England. And I can say it here for it has the right emotional range response. You know, so what? Really? Is that it? And so the teacher, the Ecclesiastes, the professor, the Kohelet, wants us to face up to this fact. Life without God stinks. <laughs> and, and when we really do that, when we see as he sees, we cannot retreat to the worship of the workaholic with his thank God it's Monday motto. We see more clearly now. It is, in a sense, once you grasp it, obvious wisdom. Like the farmer who said that the hardest thing about milking cows is that they never stay milked. That's what Ecclesiastes is saying in a nutshell. It doesn't go anywhere. And so we are weaned, therefore, of our dependence upon this life under the sun with its fantasy under the sun of offers of achievement and excitement and instead to look beyond and above and find above the sun in God what life is about. Now, this is not a self-satisfied piety. I know and you know that a halo only has to slip a few inches to become a noose. You know, this is reality. God, the real true God, our experience of him is what that's joy. That's life. And held out this morning is that the measure of your life can be cut by the divine cloth above the sun. There was a radio debate a few years ago on the question of what had more influence in society, the petticoat, the pulpit, or the press. And there were different answers given to that question discussion that day on the radio. One thing every contributor apparently agreed upon was that the pulpit was the least significant of the three. And they felt for all the large churches and the exciting rhetoric, the pulpit basically had made no real social difference to uh, our uh, society over the past 50 years or so. What if that is the case? Perhaps part of the reason, at least, is that we have exorcised from our Bibles the message of Ecclesiastes. We want feel-good religion. We want to be told that we are good and indeed we are getting better. But the preacher of Ecclesiastes says, no, under the sun we are bad and going nowhere. And it's not until that truth is faced square on that anyone is ever able to hear the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ with all its life and joy and meaning. Let's pray together. Father, would you help us to hear that message? Whether we are a Christian, we're looking for a renewal of meaning, to realize that work for the gospel is not in vain. Whether we struggle with depression and need to find um, life, to realize that we are a new creation, a new creation in Christ. Whether we are trying to find meaning 
Father. To realize that life under the sun is not the place to look, but to look further and higher and find in Jesus Christ and his death for us the life that can mean everything. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.